Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Other Wise Man by Henry Van Dyke In the days when Augustus Caesar was master of many kings and Herod reigned in Jerusalem, there lived in the city of Ecbatana, in the mountains of Persia, a certain Artaban, the Median. From the roof of his house he could look over the rising battlements of the seven walls encircling the royal treasury, to the hill where the summer palace of the Parthian emperors glittered like a jewel in a crown. Around the dwelling of Artaban spread a fair garden, a tangle of flowers and fruit trees, watered by streams descending from the slopes of Mount Orontes, and made musical by innumerable birds. But in the soft, odorous darkness of the late September night, all sounds were hushed, save the splashing of water. High above the trees a dim glow of light shone through the curtain arches of the upper chamber, where the master of the house was holding counsel with his friends. He was a tall, dark man of about forty years, with brilliant eyes set near together under his broad brow and firm lines graven around his fine, thin lips. The brow of a dreamer and the mouth of a soldier, a man of sensitive feeling but inflexible will, one of those born for a life of quest. His robe was of pure white wool, thrown over a tunic of silk, and a white pointed cap rested on his flowing black hair. It was the dress of the ancient priesthood of the Magi, called the Fire Worshippers. Welcome, he said in his low, pleasant voice, as one after another entered the room. You are all welcome, and this house grows bright with the joy of your presence. There were nine men, differing in age, but alike in the richness of their dress of many-colored silks, in the massive golden collars around their necks marking them as Parthian nobles, and in the winged circles of gold resting upon their breasts, the sign of the followers of Zoroaster. They took their places around a black altar where a tiny flame burned, Artaban standing beside it, and waving a barsom of thin tamarisk branches above the fire, fed it with dry sticks of pine and fragrant oils. Then he began the ancient chant, and the voices of his companions joined in the beautiful hymn to Ahura Mazda. We worship the divine spirit, all wisdom and goodness possessing. The fire rose with the chant, throbbing as if made of musical flame until it illuminated the whole apartment. The floor was laid with tiles of dark blue veined with white. Pilasters of twisted silver stood out against the blue walls. The clerestory of round-arched windows above was hung with azure silk. The vaulted ceiling was a pavement of sapphires, like the body of heaven in its clearness, sewn with silver stars. In effect, the room was like a quiet, starry night, flushed in the east with rosy promise of the dawn. As the house of a man should, it expressed the character and spirit of the master. When the song ended, Artaban invited his friends to be seated, and said, You have come tonight at my call as faithful scholars of Zoroaster, to renew your faith in the God of purity, even as this fire has been rekindled on the altar. We worship not the fire, 
but him of whom it is the chosen symbol, because it is the purest of all created things. It speaks to us of one who is light and truth. Is it not so, my father? It is well said, my son, answered the venerable Abgarus. The enlightened are never idolaters. They lift the veil of form and go into the shrine of reality. Hear me then, my father and my friends, said Artaban. We have searched the secrets of nature together and studied the healing virtues of water and fire and the plants. We have read also the books of prophecy in which the future is dimly foretold. But the highest of all learning is the knowledge of the stars. To trace their courses is to untangle the threads of the mystery of life from beginning to end. But is not our knowledge of them still incomplete? Are there not many stars still beyond our horizon, lights known only to the dwellers in the far southland, among the spice trees of Punt and the gold mines of Ophir? There was a murmur of assent. The stars, said Tigranese, are the thoughts of the eternal. They are numberless. The wisdom of the Magi is the greatest of all wisdoms on earth because it knows its own ignorance. And that is the secret of power. We keep men always looking for a new sunrise, but we ourselves know that the darkness is equal to the light, that the conflict between them will never be ended. That does not satisfy me, answered Artaban, for if the waiting must be endless and unfulfilled, then it would not be wisdom to look and wait. The new sunrise will certainly dawn in the appointed time, do not our own books tell us that men will see the brightness of a great light? That is true, said Abgarus. Every faithful disciple of Zoroaster knows the prophecy. In that day, Sosiash the victorious shall arise out of the prophets. Around him shall shine a mighty brightness. He shall make life everlasting, incorruptible and immortal, and the dead shall rise again. My father, said Artaban, with a glow on his face. I have carried this prophecy in the secret place of my soul. Religion without a great hope would be like an altar without a living fire. And I have read the other words which speak yet more clearly of this. He drew from his tunic two small rolls of fine linen with writing upon them. Long before our fathers came into the land of Babylon, there were wise men in Chaldea, from whom the first of the Magi learned the secret of the heavens. And of these, Balaam, was one of the mightiest. Hear the words of his prophecy. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Judah was a captive by the waters of Babylon, said Tigranes with contempt, and the sons of Jacob were in bondage to our kings. The tribes of Israel are scattered through the mountains like lost sheep. From the remnant that swells in Judea under the yoke of Rome, neither star nor scepter shall arise. And yet, answered Artaban, it was the Hebrew Daniel who was the most honored of our great King Cyrus. A sure prophet and a reader of the thoughts of God, Daniel proved himself to our people, and he wrote, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. But, my son, said Abgarus, these are mystical numbers. Who can unlock their meaning? Artaban answered, 
My three companions among the Magi, Caspar, Melchior, Balthazar, and I have searched the ancient tablets of Chaldea and computed the time. It falls in this year. We have studied the sky, and in the spring of the year we saw two of the greatest stars draw near together in the sign of the fish, which is the house of the Hebrews. We also saw a new star there, which shone for one night and vanished. Now again the two great planets are meeting. This night is their conjunction. My three brothers are watching at the ancient temple of the seven spheres at Borsippa in Babylonia, and I am watching here. If the star shines again, in ten days we will set out together for Jerusalem to see and worship the promised one who shall be born, King of Israel. I believe the sign will come. I have made ready for the journey. I have sold my house and my possessions and bought these jewels, a sapphire, a ruby, and a pearl, to carry as tribute to the king. And I ask you to go with me on the pilgrimage that we may together find the prince. From the inmost fold of his girdle, he drew out the three great gems, one blue as a fragment of the night sky, one redder than a ray of sunrise, one pure as the peak of a snow mountain at twilight. But a veil of doubt and mistrust came over his friends' faces, like a fog creeping up from the marshes to hide the hills. Artaban, this is a vain dream, Tigranes said. It comes from too much looking upon the stars and the cherishing of lofty thoughts. No king will ever rise from the broken race of Israel, and no end will ever come to the eternal strife of light and darkness. He who looks for it is a chaser of shadows. Farewell. Each of the others, in turn, said the quest was not for him. But Abgarus, the oldest, who lingered after the others had gone, said gravely, My son, it may be that the light of truth is in this sign that has appeared in the skies, or it may be that it is only a shadow of the light, as Tigranes has said. But better to follow even the shadow of the best than to remain content with the worst. And those who would see wonderful things must often be ready to travel alone. I am too old for this journey, but my heart shall be a companion of the pilgrimage. Go in peace. So, Artaban was left in solitude. For a long time he watched the flame that flickered upon the altar. Then he walked to the roof terrace. The cool wind that heralds daybreak was drawing downward from Mount Orontes. Birds, half-awakened, chirped among the rustling leaves, and the smell of ripened grapes came in brief wafts from the arbors. Far over the eastern plain a white mist stretched like a lake, but where the distant peaks of Zagro serrated the western horizon, the sky was clear. Jupiter and Saturn rolled together like drops of lambent flame about to blend into one. As Artaban watched them, behold, an azure spark was born out of the darkness beneath, rounding itself with purple splendors to a crimson sphere, then spiring upward through rays of saffron and orange into a point of white radiance, tiny and infinitely remote 
yet perfect in every part. It pulsated as if the Magian's own three jewels had mingled and been transformed into a living heart of light. He bowed his head. It is the sign, he said. The king is coming, and I will go to meet him. By the waters of Babylon. All night long, Vazda, the swiftest of Artaban's horses, had been waiting, saddled and bridled in her stall, pawing the ground impatiently and shaking her bit. Before the birds had fully roused to their high, joyful chant of morning song, before the mist had begun to lift lazily from the plain, the other wise man was in the saddle, riding swiftly westward. How close! How intimate is the comradeship between a man and his favorite horse on a long journey. They drink at the same spring, sleep under the same guardian stars. The master shares his meal with his hungry companion and feels the soft lips caressing his palm as they close over the morsel of bread. In the gray dawn, he is roused by the gentle stir of a warm breath over his sleeping face and looks up into the eyes of his faithful fellow traveler ready for the toil of the day. And then, through the keen morning air, the swift hoof beats their spirited music along the road, keeping time to the pulsing of two hearts. Artaban must indeed ride wisely and well to keep the appointed hour with the other magi, for the route was 150 parsangs, and 15 was the utmost he could travel in a day. But he pushed forward, making the fixed distance every day, though he must travel late into the night, and in the morning long before sunrise. He passed along the brown slopes of Mount Orantes, furrowed by the rocky courses of a hundred torrents. He crossed the level plains of the Nisakans, where the famous herds of horses tossed their heads at Vazda's approach, and galloped away with the thunder of many hoofs. He traversed the fertile fields of Konkabar, where the dust from the threshing floors filled the air with a golden mist, half hiding the huge temple of Astarte with its four hundred pillars. At Behistun, among the rich gardens watered by fountains from the rock, he looked up at the mountain thrusting its immense rugged brow out over the road, and saw the figure of King Darius trampling upon his fallen foe, and the proud list of his conquests graven high on the face of the eternal cliff. Over many a cold and desolate pass, crawling painfully across the wind-swept shoulders of the hills, down many a black mountain gorge, where the river roared and raced before him like a savage guide. Through the oak groves of Karin and the dark gates of Zagros, walled in by precipices, over the broad rice fields where autumnal vapors spread their deathly mists, following the river Gindes, under tremulous shadows of poplar and tamarind, and out upon the flat plain where the road ran straight as an arrow through the stubble fields and parched meadows, across the swirling floods of Tigris and the many channels of Euphrates, Artaban pressed onward until he arrived, at nightfall on the tenth day, beneath the shattered walls of populous Babylon. He would gladly have turned into the city to find rest and refreshment for himself and Vazda, but it was three hours' journey yet to the Temple of the Seven Spheres, 
and he must reach the place by midnight if he would find his comrades waiting. So he rode steadily on. A grove of date palms made an island of gloom in the pale yellow sea of stubble fields. The grove was close and silent as the tomb. Scenting some danger, Vazda picked her way delicately, carrying her head low. At last she gave a quick breath of anxiety and stood stock still, quivering in every muscle, before a dark object in the shadow of the last palm tree. Artaban dismounted. The dim starlight revealed the form of a man lying across the road, one of the poor Hebrew exiles who still dwelt in great numbers in the vicinity. His skin, dry and yellow as parchment, bore the mark of the deadly fever which ravaged the marshlands in autumn. The chill of death was in his lean hand, and when released the arm fell back inertly. Audubon turned away with a thought of pity consigning the body to that burial the Magians deemed most fitting, the funeral of the desert, from which the kites and vultures rise on dark wings and the beasts of prey slink furtively away, leaving only white bones in the sand. But as he turned, a ghostly sigh came from the man's lips. The bony fingers closed convulsively on the Magian's robe and held him fast. Artaban's spirit throbbed with a dumb resentment, what claim had this unknown fragment of human life upon his compassion or his service? If he lingered but for an hour, he could hardly reach Borsippa at the appointed time. His companions would go without him. Should he turn aside from the following of the star? Risk the great reward of his divine faith to give a cup of cold water to a poor, perishing Hebrew? God of truth and purity, he prayed, direct me in the holy path, the way of wisdom, which thou only knowest. Then Artaban turned back to the sick man. Carrying him to the foot of the palm tree, he brought water and moistened the sufferer's brow and breath. He mingled a draft of one of those simple but potent remedies he carried always in his girdle, for the Magians were skillful physicians as well as astrologers, and poured it slowly between the colorless lips. Hour after hour he labored, and at last the man's strength returned. He sat up and looked about him. Who art thou? he said. I am Artaban the Magian, and I am going to Jerusalem in search of one who is to be born a great prince and deliverer of all men. I dare not delay any longer. But see, here is all I have left of bread and wine, and a potion of healing herbs. The Jew raised his trembling hand solemnly to heaven. May the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob bless and prosper the journey of the merciful. I have nothing to give thee in return, only this, that our prophets have said the Messiah should be born not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem of Judah. May the Lord bring thee in peace and safety to that place. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.